0: Let us all turn together to the word of God this evening a reading from 2nd Timothy and the chapter 4 Paul's last letter Timothy was a dear servant of God and exceedingly dear to the apostle Paul Among all the beloved servants of Christ that Accompanied him, I suppose, if Timothy didn't have the first place. Uh, among the rest, uh, he was very close to that. And some, I'm sure, would even credit him with first place in the Apostle's heart. And here he is, putting pen to the page, writing out these last words. And what a message he has! To convey, it's 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Remember, Timothy himself is a minister of Christ, a preacher of the gospel, and even preachers need to be stirred up. And Paul is thinking along these lines, maybe this last letter, Timothy, although you have ventured Far with God and gone on with God, you haven't been a disappointment by any means. Ah, oh, to the contrary, you've been a worthy servant of Christ. But just the same, your heart can be stirred, and you will grant needs to be stirred. Verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead, at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. But the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves, teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables, that watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, for I I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed onto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Lucas with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Precious, precious words. May the Lord grant his blessing tonight. Even in an overflowing way, as the word is preached among us. Amen. Let's
1: turn please again in the word of God to Second Timothy chapter four, the last letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote as a prisoner in the city of Rome, shortly before leaving this world. He writes to Timothy with words of comfort and counsel. And words of encouragement. You'll find the portion we want to look at tonight from verse 6 down to verse number 8. Paul says, I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only but unto all them also that love His appearing. Familiar words, and they've been brought to her attention a number of times in recent days. Quite a number of our church family have lost loved ones, and have been hit hard over the last year with bereavements. And yet these words are a great encouragement and a great comfort to the Christian. And we want to speak tonight for a little while upon the subject, The End of the Journey the end of the journey. Let's unite our hearts together in a word of prayer. Let's seek the Lord and pray that God will speak to us afresh through these wonderful and beautiful words. Let's pray. Loving God and everlasting Father, we come to thee afresh in the Savior's name, filled with thankfulness that we have in our hands this precious and this inspired book. We thank you, Lord, tonight that in this world of darkness, God has given us light. And the psalmist could say concerning the Word of God, that it is a lamp unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. We pray tonight, O God, that you will shed light upon us. Grant, O God, that each and every one of us might hear the speaking voice of God. And that whenever we come to our journey's end in this present world, that we might be able to look back and testify to the greatness of the grace of God in our lives. Pray tonight, Lord, that you will speak to us. Glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and grant the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray that we might be very, very much aware of the presence of the Lord within these walls. Continue with us now and speak, we ask, and in Jesus' name and for God's glory we pray. Amen. A person's last recorded or spoken words in this world are often their most profound. And yet at the same time, there is often a very marked contrast between the last words of a Christian, someone who loves and knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, and between somebody who is not a believer, someone who has lived for self only and lived for this present world. There's often a very real contrast between the last words of a Christian and a non Christian. John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, as he was lying in his deathbed, the last words that he spoke were, This is life eternal, that they might know thee. That is where I first cast my anchor. There was a man who had victory and assurance in his heart as he was about to pass into eternity. Samuel Rutherford, the old Scottish Puritan who spent a lot of his life suffering and imprisoned for his faith as he was dying, simply said glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. David Brainerd was a missionary in North America to the Native Indians, he lived a short life and never enjoyed good health and yet blazed a trail for God. And as David Brainerd was dying, his last heard words were these, I am almost in eternity. I long to be there. My work is done. Oh, to be in heaven, to praise and glorify God with his holy angels. The famous American evangelist D.L. Moody, as he was dying, simply said, Earth recedes, heaven opens before me. And John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, the famous evangelist, simply said, Best of all, God is with us. And Billy Bray, the famous evangelist from Cornwall, simply said as he was dying, one word, glory. Glory. And yet whenever we consider some of the world's most famous people who we understand to be non-believers, Winston Churchill, looking back in his life, his last recorded words, I'm bored with it all. Frank Sinatra, as he was dying, cried out, I'm losing it. Truman Capote, famous uh, author, he wrote breakfast at Tiffany's and in cold blood, cried out for his mother, as even as an aged man, his mother long gone, cried out as he was dying his last words, Mama, Mama, Mama. Elizabeth I said, all my millions for just one inch of time. Bob Marley, the Jamaican Rastafarian pop star, said, money cannot buy life. Napoleon Bonaparte's last words, What an abyss lies between my deep misery and the eternal kingdom of Christ. And then some who were not conscious that they were living in their last moments, their last words as well, very profound. Heath Ledger was an Australian actor. He died from a drug overdose a few years ago at the age of 28. His last recorded words, I'll be fine. Paul Walker was an American actor. He died in a high-speed car crash at the age of 40. And shortly before getting into the car, he turned around to a friend and said, I'll be back in five minutes. Those were his last recorded words. James Dean, another actor who died young in life, at the age of 24 as he was traveling in a car, and saw another car hurtling towards him, turned around to his friend and said, That guy's got to see us. But he didn't, and there was a collision which resulted in the life of James Dean being cut off at the age of 24. Famous last words. I wonder tonight, have you ever considered what your last words might be as you close your eyes in death? If you were afforded an opportunity at the end of life's journey to look back in your life with clarity, with all of your faculties, and with intelligence, and were able to survey and summarize your life, as you face eternity, I wonder what your last words might be. Would you be full of regret? Would you be filled with remorse? Would you look back with a sense of disappointment? Or would you look back in your life with joy and gladness, and with thanksgiving, And would you be able to look eternity in the face with confidence and with assurance that all is well with your soul? Here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has reached the end of the journey. He's in a prison cell in the city of Rome. He's awaiting his execution. He knows that that is going to happen almost imminently. And so one last time he takes a pen He takes parchment, and he writes down his last words and sends them off to a young Christian evangelist pastor named Timothy. And amongst the last words of the Apostle Paul are these. Verse number 6, chapter 4, 2 Timothy. I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. As we consider tonight the end of the journey, or journey's end, the last words of the Apostle Paul, it seems that as Paul stands on the precipice between time and eternity, he takes four good looks around him. And we're going to look tonight at some of those directions that Paul looks to and Luke at in the last moments of his life here on earth. First of all, you'll notice in verse number 6, as far as we look at the last words of the Apostle Paul at the end of life's journey, there is an inward look of assurance. An inward look of assurance. Sometimes in life, it's important to take a good look at ourselves. Sometimes we need to really search our hearts and look deep into our souls in the light of God's Word and assess where we really stand and what we really are before Almighty God. God's servant James in his little epistle records in James chapter 1 and verse number 23, If any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man Beholding his natural face in a glass or in a mirror. And the word of God is like a mirror. A mirror for the soul. And whenever we look at ourselves in the light of what God's word says. It reveals what we are inwardly. And I believe Paul in his last moments of life on this earth. Looks inwardly but it's an inward look of assurance. He's able to say I I'm now ready. I am now ready. Can you say that this evening? Can you look at yourself inwardly and your relationship with God and think about the great eternity and think about the life that you've lived up until this point with all of its varying experiences and can you testify, I am now ready. You'll notice here as Paul has this inward look of assurance that he's able to testify that he is ready personally. I am now ready. It's lovely to be able to look at family members and say, I know that whenever they leave this scene of time, I know exactly where they're going. Maybe tonight you can look at your father or your mother or maybe a grandparent that has gone on before. Maybe even a brother or a sister. Maybe your very spouse the person that you share your house with, your home with, your very bed with. And you can look at them or maybe your children and say, I know that they are ready. I know that they've trusted Christ. I know that they're saved. And I know that if something happens as inevitably it will, I know that they are ready. But what about you? Are you ready? Has there been a time in your life whenever you've put your faith and trust In Jesus Christ. Paul could say, I am ready personally. I am ready. That's a blessed and a wonderful thing. Jesus Christ, our Lord, at the end of the Olivet Discourse, as he spoke about eternity, as he spoke about his coming again to this world, to come again for his people, he said that the day and hour that he was coming was a day that no man knew of. Nobody knows that there they are. And so he said, be ye also ready. Be ye also ready. Those are unmistakable words. Words of exhortation. Words of challenge. Can I ask you afresh? Are you ready? Now Paul was not always ready. Paul could look back to a time in his life whenever he was deeply religious, he was God-fearing, He attended the synagogues and went betimes times to the temple. He knew the word of God. He knew the law of God. He had been through all of the ordinances of Jewish religion. He'd been circumcised to eighth day. He was brought up in the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was zealous for his religion, but he was not ready to meet the Lord. He could look back to a time in his life, and in his first letter to Timothy, he testified there was a time whenever he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, injurious, but I obtained mercy. There came a day whenever God's mercy reached me. There came a day in my life whenever God's mercy saved me. A defining moment in his life. You can read about it in Acts chapter 8. A defining moment whenever his life was radically changed. And he became a new creature in Christ. A number of years ago, I remember speaking at a a primary school up there in the town of Portrush. Speaking to the boys and girls in their school assembly about Saul's conversion. Here was a man who was going the wrong direction. He realized he was going the wrong direction. And he made a U-turn And his life was turned around. And I can remember after that assembly was over, a school like others I'd been in many times before, a lady came running out after me and she called me by name. And I immediately thought, this woman is irate. She's offended by something I've said. And she stopped me and says, what you spoke on? Can't believe it. And she says, I was speaking to the children just the other day about that very story, trying to explain the word transformation And metamorphosis, and she says, "I used the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and that was just yesterday." And there you come into your school and you spoke on it this morning. And I looked that lady in the face and I say, "Well, can I ask you a question? Have you been converted? Have you ever been changed by the grace of God?" And she have to lament, and she said, "No, I haven't." But what I've heard this morning has made me think. You can look at others who have been converted. But what about you personally? Have you ever been converted? Paul could say, I am ready personally. Paul could also say, I am ready positively. I am ready. It wasn't just a pipe dream. It wasn't just a shot in the dark. It wasn't just vain hope or presumption. Paul could testify and Paul could say, I am ready. I know that I'm ready. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 12, words of positive assurance, I know whom I have believed. Notice he didn't say, I know what I have believed. He knew what he had believed. He'd believed the gospel. But he says, I know whom I have believed. He's speaking about the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's testifying here, I know him personally. Before I knew about the coming Messiah. But now I know him. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Fanny Crosby said, Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Dick Hill was a Roman Catholic man brought up in the Republic of Ireland. He's become a great servant of Christ, a great evangelist. He's got a little testimony booklet. And the title of his testimony is quite simply, No Longer Hoping. No Longer Hoping. There's a man who's got assurance. I mentioned this morning Pastor Ivan Thompson. Whenever he was converted in a gospel meeting just like this in East Belfast, as a relatively young man, he went into the workplace the next day, News spread like wildfire that Ivan Thompson had got saved. Sitting in the canteen at lunch, one of his former colleagues, a big fitter, turned around and said, I heard you got saved. And he said, Yes, I did. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't know much about the Bible. He knew even less about theology. And that big man said to him, How do you know you're saved? Now, he'd never been asked a question like that How do I know I'm saved? And he just looked at that man in the eye and says, How do you know you're not saved? And the big man says, I know rightly I'm not saved. Ivan Thompson says, That's how I know I am saved. I know rightly I'm saved. There was an assurance in his heart. And the Apostle Paul had said, I am now ready. I am ready. I know rightly that I'm ready. There's something in my heart that was never there before. The King has entered in. And I know that I'm saved. I'm ready personally. I'm ready positively. I'm also ready presently. I am now ready. Some people hold out hope that they'll get ready some other time. And maybe that's you tonight. You hope that this time next year you'll be ready. And you've been saying that for years. Paul could say to Timothy, I am now ready. Right this moment, I am ready. Soon as the Lord calls me from time into eternity... I've nothing to set in order. I am now ready. There's been a time in my life when I've repented of my sins. I've put my trust in Jesus Christ. I've been born again. And now, even as a believer, even as a Christian, I am ready. Yes, ready in a legal sense, but ready also in a practical sense. I don't have to repent of any sins that I knew of. I don't have to make restitution to anyone that I've wronged. I don't have to repair any broken relationships. Paul is a man who, since his conversion, has lived close to Jesus Christ. He's ready in a legal sense because his sins have been forgiven. But he's also ready in a practical sense because he's been living closely to his Savior. The Apostle John said, In 1 John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in Him, that whenever He shall appear, ye may have confidence, and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Whenever Jesus Christ comes back again, many people are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Others are going to be caught out because they'll not be ready. But some believers, some professing believers, are going to be caught on given a red face whenever Jesus Christ our Lord comes back again. An angel of the Lord spoke to Hezekiah, a messenger from the Lord, a prophet of the Lord, and said, set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. If the Lord was to speak to you tonight, say set your house in order, I wonder would there be much you'd have to see to Paul could say, I am ready personally, I am ready positively, I am ready presently. An inward look of assurance. But then there's another look that the Apostle Paul takes, and that's the forward look of awareness. I am now ready. The inward look of assurance. But then there's also the forward look of awareness. The time. Of my departure is at hand. I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. The forward look of awareness, Paul, in that prison cell, was deeply aware of something. He was aware that very soon the prison doors would open. He'd receive a summons. And then he would be ushered out. And he would die as a martyr for the faith. And as Paul looked forward, he was living very much with eternity's values in view. He was aware that his departure would be soon because he makes mention there of the time of my departure. The time of my departure is at hand. The time of my departure. Now as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he reminded them, time is short. It used to be grandparents told their grandchildren, no, nothing goes faster than the time. And now children are even saying it. Our children at home, they often say, I can't believe how quickly time is passing by. It seems like a a short blink from one year to the next. And I'm sure many of you can testify that 2022 was perhaps the fastest year of your life. Time certainly is short. Time certainly is fleeting. Job could say in the midst of all of his suffering in Job 7 and 6, my days are faster than a weaver's shuttle. And many of you growing up in Lisburn, some of you I know that you worked in some of the great mills in the town. It might have been Barber Threads or Stewart's Mill or the Island Spinning Mill. And that shuttle just goes across the loom like a flash. And Job says that's like life itself. It goes by so quickly and it's over in a flash. And the word of God also says that not only is time short, not only is time fleeting, but God has appointed our times. The psalmist said, my times are in my hands. And God has set the bounds of our habitation. John F. Kennedy never knew that cold morning of 22nd of November, 1963, As he got into his limousine and was traveling through the streets of downtown Dallas. That that was his last day on this earth. A young man sitting with his beautiful wife. Got the adulation of the crowd and the admiration of the world. And as he got into that car he never thought for one moment. That he wouldn't step out of it alive again. His life would be taken from him. And his departure would be soon. Last year went very quickly. And I'm sure the year ahead will go quicker still. And yet one of these days it'll all be over. Someday every single one of us in this meeting will be in eternity. Probably for most of us it'll be within 70 years. Probably for the vast majority of us it'll be within the next 30 years. Perhaps for some of us it might be within the next 5 or 6 years. Who knows, but this might be the last year we will spend in this earth. Paul was aware, my departure will be soon. Paul was also aware, my departure is going to be sudden. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. At hand. Whenever we talk about something being at hand, we mean it's there right before us. And we can just reach it out and lift it. It's there, it's at our hand. And Paul recognized that living life in this world, he was always living in the shadow of death. And the time of his departure was very much at hand. At any moment, those prison doors would open, a key would be turned in the door, and the door would be opened, and a Roman guard, maybe accompanied by Roman soldiers, would say, Paul, it's time to go. And now you're going to face your death. And he knew that that would happen very suddenly. The doors would be opened. And he'd be ushered out to the place of execution. And from there, ushered out into the great eternity. King David, the king of Israel, once said, There is a step between me and death. All deaths are sudden. Not all deaths are unexpected. But all deaths are sudden. Just a heartbeat. Just a pulse. All of a sudden, you're a flatliner. And life in this earth is over. I befriended a man up on the north coast, started coming to our church. He had a remarkable testimony to give. Someday we'll get him down to Lisburn to give his testimony. He was brought up in a Christian home. His father was greatly involved in one of the gospel halls. He loved the Lord. But his son became a wayward teenager in and out of Borstal, soon got involved with the paramilitaries, cost his father a fortune and paying fines and bail bonds and so on and so forth. And then his son a rejector of Christ, a rejector of the gospel, was working as a steel erector in one of the big supermarkets. And as they were standing in the precipice of this building erecting steel, his colleague began to sing a song that certainly I'm unfamiliar with. And the title of the song is, Drop Me, Jesus, Through the Goalposts of Life. And he says, I was standing. He says, now I was far from God. I was no example of what a Christian should be. I knew that I had done wrong, I wasn't living for God, I broke my father's heart. But as that man sang that song, standing where we were standing, all of a sudden, the fear of God gripped me, dropped me, Jesus, through the goalposts of life. And he said, just as he finished singing, he turned around and smiled took a step back and fell off the top of the building and hit his head in the curb and he was gone in an instant. And all of a sudden, the fear of God, the reality of eternity, gripped me. Where is he now? What a way to leave this scene of time. God took him. He believed at his word. Paul says, the time of my departure is going to be soon. The time of my departure is sudden. But also he says the time of my departure is sacrificial. Did you see what he said in verse number 6? That I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. The word offer means to be poured out as a libation. Poured out in a sense as a sacrifice. Paul is going to die as a martyr. The day that Paul was converted... He asked the Lord Jesus Christ a great question. What wilt thou have me to do? First of all, he asked, who art thou, Lord? And then whenever that was fixed and established in his mind, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Saul of Tarsus realized that the Son of God was alive and well, and speaking to him, he asked another question. What wilt thou have me to do? You know what he's doing? He's saying, Lord, here's my life. And if you really died on that cross for me and rose again for me, I'm giving you my life. What do you want me to do? Whatever it is, I'll surrender and yield my life unreservedly, completely, absolutely to you. And whenever Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, in Romans 12, 1, he said to them, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He said it's entirely reasonable that we give all that we are and all that we have and all that we ever hope to be and we give our bodies back to Jesus Christ. Why? Because He died on a cross and shed His blood and took our guilt and sin and shame to redeem our souls but also to redeem our bodies. Like C.T. Studd, the famous English cricketer, who laid it all in the line one night, he said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Can I ask you tonight, what about your life? Will you give your life to God tonight? Will you give your life to Jesus Christ? Maybe tonight you're a professing Christian, but you're holding so much back. Will you ask that all-important question? Lord, what will thou have me to do? And Paul never looked back. He never took his body, his life off the altar. And now he recognizes my death is going to be sacrificial. I'm going to be offered. But he was only thinking about the cross. The author of the book of Hebrews says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, Offered up his life upon a cross and died for your sins so that you might be set free. He offered up himself for us. I wonder, will you offer your life in surrender and dedication to him? Paul looked inward, it was a look of assurance. Paul looked forward, it was a look of awareness. But Paul also looked backward. And it was a look of appreciation. Paul could look back on his Christian life without regret. Many, many regrets before he was converted, but we don't really read about any regrets in Paul's life after he was converted. The prophet of God said in Old Testament scripture, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. Paul was not ashamed to be a Christian. Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He was glad, he was proud that he was saved, not because of what he had done, but he was proud of his Savior. God forbid that I should glory, saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul looked back, he was able to say, I have fought the fight. I have fought a good fight. You see it there, don't you, in verse number seven? The backward look of appreciation, I have fought. A good fight. Dear friends, life is a battle. And life has got many trials and difficulties and troubles. And the Christian life is also a battle. The Bible says it's like a fight of faith. And there are many powers and principalities that war against the mind and the heart of the believer. The Christian life is a battle. And sometimes in life we get hurt. Sometimes in life we get discouraged. Sometimes in the battle of life we get weary. Sometimes we're tempted to quit, we're tempted to give up. We discover that Satan is real, Satan is active, Satan is relentless. And I'm sure tonight many of God's people, as you look back over the last year, you've thought it's been a struggle, it's been a battle, it's been a fight. But now Paul realizes the fight at last is drawing to a close. And he's able to finish with a note of victory. And he's able to say, I have fought the fight. And I have fought a good fight. He's also able to say, I have finished my course. Christian life is not just a fight, a battle. But the Christian life is described as being a race. Paul says we're to run with patience the race that is set before us. And as Paul is running this race, he sees that the finishing line is very much in view. It's almost like he can see the tape across across the course. And he knows that he's going to burst through that tape. And he's able to say, I have finished my course. Sadly, Paul can look to many that once fought with him, that once ran with him, that once stood with him, that once prayed with him. And many have bowed out of the race. He speaks in verse number 10 about Demas. He spoke in other letters that Demas stood with me. But now he looks and says, I don't see Demas anywhere. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. I wonder, was there a time you were running well for Jesus Christ? You were walking with God, weren't you? And you loved the Lord, and you loved his word, and you loved his people. But you bowed out. Maybe you got distracted. Maybe you got diverted. Maybe you got depressed. Maybe you got discouraged. Maybe you fell into some sin and you felt you'd let the Lord down. Maybe the world looked so attractive and we have seen many people bow out. How about you tonight? Will you be able to look back at the end of life's journey and say, I've fought a good fight? Will you be able to look back at the end of life's journey and say, I have finished my course? It's not how you start the Christian life that's the most important thing. Of course, it's vital that you do start. But the most important thing is how you finish. Jesus Christ said, He that endureth to the end shall be saved. And Paul is also able to say, Yes, I fought the fight. Yes, I have finished the course. But he's also able to say, I have kept the faith. I've kept the faith in doctrine. And I've kept the faith in practice. I have kept the faith. I didn't compromise. I didn't sell my Lord out. I didn't deny the Scriptures. I didn't deny the Gospel. I didn't deny the person and work of Jesus Christ. I have kept the faith. The faith once delivered to the saints. And I also kept the faith in practice. Sad to relate that Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.1 that there would come a time whenever many would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, and doctrines of devils. Time was whenever professing evangelical Christians knew the difference between truth and error. And they knew the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel. And they knew the difference between Bible salvation and the false plan of salvation. And many are adulating the, the Pope and talking about what a great man of faith he was. But the Apostle Paul knew that there would come a time whenever many would come in Christ's name and say, I am Christ, and would deceive many. And he knew the difference between salvation by grace and salvation by works. He knew the difference between the true Christ and the Antichrist. He knew the difference between the true head of the church, our Lord and Savior, and other false leaders and blind leaders of the blind. Paul kept the faith in doctrine. Paul kept the faith in practice. But you said he looked backward with appreciation. But surely Paul is saying, these are things that I have done. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. I have fought a good fight but paul i believe is looking back with appreciation why because in 1 corinthians 15:10 paul said by the grace of god i am what i am he was able to say it's no longer i that live but christ lives in me he didn't live the christian life in the flesh He didn't say this is all the things that I have done because I made the right choices and I made the right decisions and I took the right course of action and I was strong enough and I was able to trust in the arm of the flesh. Paul says it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. 250 years ago this very week, John Newton's great hymn, Amazing Grace, was first sung on the 1st of January 17 and 73. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangerous toils and snares I have already come. Grace has led me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. That's the heart that the Apostle Paul had. He's able to look back and say, grace has led me safe thus far. The grace of God saved me all of those years ago on the road to Damascus. The grace of God has kept me. The grace of God has enabled me to fight victoriously. The grace of God has enabled me to finish my course. The grace of God has enabled me to keep the faith. And it's like he's looking back and he's just saying, Lord, I'm so thankful for all that you've done for the sinful soul of mine. An inward look of assurance. A forward look of awareness. A backward look of appreciation. Notice one last look. Verse number 8. An upward look of anticipation. Henceforth. That means in the life hereafter. Whenever I shortly leave this scene of time. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only but unto all them also that love his appearing. Paul could not look upward with anticipation unless he had been enabled to look inward with assurance, unless he had been able to look forward with awareness, unless he had been able to look backward with appreciation. Only then can he look upward with anticipation. As he thinks about the great reward that's awaiting him in glory. He speaks about this crown a crown of righteousness. Notice the reality, the reality of the crown. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Laid up. Whenever Peter was writing his first epistle, he spoke in First Peter chapter 1, verse 4 that we are kept by the power of God, and there is an inheritance. Incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, and it's kept or reserved in heaven for you. And Paul is now speaking about that great reward. He says, This crown is laid up for me. There's a crown in glory, and it's got my name on it, and it's a crown of righteousness. First Corinthians 9:25, Paul spoke about the athlete's crown, the victor's crown. The man that runs the race or participates in games and fights for the mastery, and he receives a crown, but he says it's a crown that's corruptible. Often in those times, in those first Olympic Games, if we could call them that, it was like a, a crown of, of leaves and it was put on the victor's brow, but it withered quickly. And the crowns that this world gives to its people, they wither, they corrupt, they fade, even if they're crowns of gold. But Paul is here speaking about a crown of righteousness. A crown that fades not away. The things that this world holds dear, they're all corruptible. One hundred years from now, is what you're living for really worth it in light of eternity? Or will all of the things that you labor for and hold dear a hundred years from now, or five minutes after you die, they will all have counted for nothing? Paul speaks here about the reality of a crown that's incorruptible. Something will last for all eternity. Hymn writers said, I must labor for treasures of worth. ere toil ends at the close of the day. Notice the benefactor of the crown, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me. Isn't that an amazing statement? Paul, this man who was once injurious, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a hater of Jesus Christ, anticipates a day, as he looks upward, whenever the Lord himself will give me a crown. He who once was crowned with thorns will crown the sinner that's been redeemed. And the Lord himself, Paul says, is going to give me a crown so unworthy. Notice one last thing, the recipient of the crown, that the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give I can hardly believe what Paul's saying. I was the chief of sinners, and the Son of God gave himself for me, not just to redeem me from hell, not just to cancel out my transgressions, but to reconcile me to himself, and someday I'm going to see him. And whenever I see him, he's going to crown me with a crown. Isn't it an amazing thing? But more amazing still, Paul says, And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Everyone that can look back to the coming of Christ into the world and can say, I love him because he came into this world for me. And I love the fact that he's going to appear again. I love his appearing, his first appearing. But I also long and love the very thought of his second appearing and he's coming back and he's going to crown all of his people with an incorruptible crown. What remarkable, remarkable words. I wonder, can I ask you again, when you come to the end of life's journey, if you have all of your faculties, if you have all your reason, all your clarity, all your senses, and all your intelligence, what will your last words be? Will you be able to look inwardly with assurance? Will you be able to look forward with awareness? Will you be able to look backward with appreciation? Will you be able to look upward with anticipation? Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if you could look back to this very date, if you're not yet a Christian, and look back to this very date, the 8th of January, the year of our Lord, 2022, and say, that was the moment when I was born again. That was the moment that I received Christ. That was the night that I set out for heaven and for home. And you can trace your conversion back to this very night. May God write his word upon our hearts. May God bless you. May God encourage you. And thank you so much for listening. Your attention has been a real
0: encouragement.